Section 9 of Canoeing in the Wilderness by Henry David Thoreau. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Melissa Green. Chapter 9, Friday, July 31st. We had smooth but swift water for a considerable distance, where we glided rapidly along, scaring up ducks and kingfishers. But as usual, our smooth progress ere long come to an end, and we were obliged to carry canoe and all about half a mile down the right bank around some rapids or falls. It required sharp eyes sometimes to tell which side was the carry before you went over the falls, but Polis never failed to land us rightly. The raspberries were particularly abundant and large here, and all hands went to eating them, the Indian remarking on their size. Often on bare rocky carries the trail was so indistinct that I repeatedly lost it, but when I walked behind him I observed that he could keep it almost like a hound, and rarely hesitated, or if he paused a moment on a bare rock, his eye immediately detected some sign which would have escaped me. Frequently we found no path at all at these places, and were to him unaccountably delayed. He would only say it was very strange. We had heard of a grand fall on this stream, and thought that each fall we came to must be it. But after christening several in succession with this name, we gave up the search. There were more grand or petty falls than I can remember. I cannot tell how many times we had to walk on account of falls or rapids. We were expecting all the while that the river would take a final leap and get to smooth water, but there was no improvement this forenoon. However, the carries were an agreeable variety. So surely as we stepped out of the canoe and stretched our legs, we found ourselves in a blueberry and raspberry garden, each side of our rocky trail being lined with one or both. There was not a carry on the main east branch where we did not find an abundance of both these berries, for these were the rockiest places and partially cleared, such as these plants prefer, and there had been none to gather the finest before us. We bathed and dined at the foot of one of these carries. It was the Indian who commonly reminded us that it was dinner time, sometimes even by turning the prow to the shore. He once made an indirect but lengthy apology by saying that we might think it strange but that one who worked hard all day was very particular to have his dinner in good season. At the most considerable fall on this stream, when I was walking over the carry close behind the Indian, he observed a track on the rock, which was but slightly covered with soil, and stooping muttered, Caribou. When we returned, he observed a much larger track near the same place, where some animal's foot had sunk into a small hollow in the rock, partly filled with grass and earth, and he exclaimed with surprise, What that? Well, what is it? I asked. Stooping and laying his hand in it, he answered with a mysterious air, and in a half-whisper, Devil. That is Indian devil or cougar. Ledges about here. Very bad animal. Pull em rocks all to pieces. How long since it was made? I asked. Today or yesterday, said he. We spent at least half the time in walking today. The Indian being alone commonly ran down far below the foot of the carries before he waited for us. The carry paths themselves were more than usually indistinct, often the route being revealed only by the countless small holes in the fallen timber made by the tacks and the driver's boots. It was a tangled and perplexing thicket through which we stumbled and threaded our way, and when we had finished a mile of it our starting point seemed far away. We were glad that we had not got to walk to Bangor along the banks of this river, which would be a journey of more than a hundred miles. Think of the denseness of the forest, the fallen trees and rocks, the windings of the river, the streams emptying in, and the frequent swamps to be crossed. It made you shudder. Yet the Indian from time to time pointed out to us where he had thus crept along day after day when he was a boy of ten, and in a starving condition. He had been hunting far north of this with two grown Indians. 
the winter came on unexpectedly early, and the ice compelled them to leave their canoe at Grand Lake and walk down the bank. They shouldered their furs and started for Old Town. The snow was not deep enough for snowshoes, or to cover the inequalities of the ground. Polis was soon too weak to carry any burden, but he managed to catch one otter. This was the most they had to eat on this journey, and he remembered how good the yellow lily roots were made into a soup with the otter oil. He shared this food equally with the other two, but being so small he suffered much more than they. He waded through the Matawamkeg at its mouth when it was freezing cold and came up to his chin, and he, being very weak and emaciated, expected to be swept away. The first house which they reached was at Lincoln, and thereabouts they met a white teamster with supplies, who, seeing their condition, gave them as much as they could eat. For six months after getting home he was very low and did not expect to live and was perhaps always the worse for it. For seven or eight miles below that succession of grand falls, the aspect of the banks as well as the character of the stream was changed. After passing a tributary from the northeast, we had swift, smooth water. Low, grassy banks and muddy shores began. Many elms, as well as maples and more ash trees, overhung the stream and supplanted the spruce. Mosquitoes, black flies, etc., pursued us in mid-channel, and we were glad sometimes to get into violent rapids, for then we escaped them. As we glided swiftly down the inclined plain of the river, a great cat-owl launched itself away from a stump on the bank and flew heavily across the stream, and the Indian, as usual, imitated its note. Soon afterward, a white-headed eagle sailed down the stream before us. We drove him several miles while we were looking for a good place to camp, for we expected to be overtaken by a shower, and still we could distinguish him by his white tail sailing away from time to time from some tree by the shore still further down the stream. Some she-corways, being surprised by us, a part of them dived, and we passed directly over them and could trace their course here and there by a bubble on the surface, but we did not see them come up. It was some time before we found a camping place, for the shore was either too grassy and muddy where mosquitoes abounded, or too steep a hillside. We at length found a place to our minds, where in a very dense spruce wood above a gravelly shore there seemed to be but few insects. The trees were so thick that we were obliged to clear a space to build our fire and lie down in, and the young spruce trees that were left were like the wall of an apartment rising around us. We were obliged to pull ourselves up a steep bank to get there, but the place which you have selected for your camp, though never so rough and grim, begins at once to have its attractions, and becomes a very center of civilization to you. Home is home, be it never so homey. The mosquitoes were numerous, and the Indian complained a good deal, though he lay, as the night before, between three fires and his stretched hide. As I sat on a stump by the fire with a veil and gloves on, trying to read, he observed, I make you candle. And in a minute he took a piece of birch bark about two inches wide and rolled it hard like an alumet, fifteen inches long, lit it, fixed it by the other end horizontally in a split stick three feet high, and stuck it in the ground turning the blazing end to the wind and telling me to snuff it from time to time. It answered the purpose of a candle pretty well. I noticed, as I had before, that there was a lull among the mosquitoes about midnight, and that they began again in the morning. Apparently they need rest as well as we. Few, if any, creatures are equally active at night. As soon as it was light, I saw through my veil that the inside of the tent about our heads was quite blackened with myriads, and their combined hum was almost as bad to endure as their stings. I had an uncomfortable night on this account, though I am not sure that one succeeded in his attempt to sting me. End of section 9. Recording by Melissa Green.